welcome everyone to this second episode of the Mile 27 podcast. Today we are going to be talking about planning your race calendar, about A, B and C races, how many races you can do, the gaps between races, the types of races. Before we do, let's just say good day to our fellow coaches Ben and Simon. How are you boys? Good, thank you. Very good, sir. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Excellent. Not too bad at all. Thank you. So I, I thought we'd start today's conversation off with a discussion on A, why we race, because that's important in determining you know, what kind of races you're going to do. You need to think about why you do race, um, and also the types of races that you're most strongly drawn towards, because you know whenever a client says to me, you know, what, what should I do race-wise, the first thing I ask them is, you know, why do you race and what races do you like? So let's start the conversation off, Ben, with you know, why you race what you get out of it and um, what kind of races you're drawn most heavily to. So a big part for me, something that I can really get out of racing that I can't just do in training is that it's that opportunity to push yourself further than you possibly can uh, by by yourself in training. That there's both a competition element that uh, having, you're there, I view it often that you're racing with people rather than against people, that you're trying to bring out the best in everyone and that way you can really elevate to that level that you just can't do in training. And the other thing would be that you've got uh, all the logistics of a race that you can't really organise checkpoints and things like that in training. You've got safety elements like medics and that in a race that you don't have that I have pushed myself <laughs> to the point of collapse in several races, and that is not something that would be safe to do no. by myself in the middle of the bush. You do not want to be collapsing in the middle of the bush by yourself. No. I mean, you don't really want to be collapsing in a race either, but it kind of helps when you've got several doctors to come look after you immediately. Yeah, definitely a safety aspect there. So what um, what kind of races are you drawn most strongly towards? Distances, terrain, so, fields... Yeah, so I guess sort of a bit of the yeah, context there that I'm sort of, you know, semi-professional runner and that. So there is obviously a big competition element and that. So trying to, so we'll be drawn to uh, more competitive races. As I said, that's that chance to really get the best out of yourself is to race the best. I want to race the most competitive fields because of that. And then within that, I, I like to mix up variety of distances and that but I'm always very drawn more towards mountain races and that I will do some flatter races in the interest of that uh competitiveness trying to get that side out of it but uh my preference is always towards sort of hillier more technical courses and that that if it's yeah gnarly and mountainous that's kind <laughs> of my cup of tea so does it matter in terms of the type of race you know um, whether it's loops or point-to-point or, you know, does, does those criteria go into your thought process or does it really matter? To an extent, yes. As I said, it's, it's weighing up all of these things. That it's I won't say no to, say, a looped course, but something that makes geographical sense is preferable. I'm, I, I don't care if it's 98 kilometres and not a nice round 100 k's if it makes geographical sense. I'd rather do that than adding on a uh, token 2K out and back along a road just to get the distance up. But, you know, a lot of races do that because a lot of people want to say they ran 100Ks and, you know, so be it, I'll run that extra 2Ks. I'm not going to stop and throw a tantrum because of that (laughs) either. So, yeah, it sort of depends. You're balancing up all those different things. But, yeah, I think... uh, 
one big loop or a point to point is sort of preferable in that you get to just see the most variety of terrain. So that's really cool. But sometimes, yeah, loops and that are necessary for logistical reasons and that. How do you balance up the, you know, on one hand, you want a deeply competitive field to kind of challenge you and push yourself to, as you said, you know, getting more out of yourself versus a race that might not have that depth of field, but is geographically pretty exciting to do. Yeah, it kind of will vary. It depends a bit on what sort of mood you're in, that sometimes you... Sometimes I really do want to just see, okay, how fit, how fast can I get and really are in that mood to sort of really push my physical limits. And other times, but, but that's a mentally really challenging uh, mindset to be in. That really is when you uh, can be burning the candle at both ends for a bit to try and get in that sort of shape. And so it can then help to sometimes step back sort of and just do what do I think is a quote-unquote fun, acknowledging that it's often more a type 2 fun <laughs> sort of course, and focus on those for a while. And obviously it's really nice when those two things line up together that you can find a course that you're like, I would love to do this even if there was no one turning up and the fact that it's super competitive is uh, then sort of the best of both worlds. So, yeah, it, there uh, I wouldn't have one distinct answer that it does depend a bit where am I at yeah, mentally in that. So let us know, what's your favourite three races to date and why? Probably the course I've enjoyed the most would be the Mont Blanc 90K. I would also probably rate it as one of the best races yeah. I've ever had, but it's sort of because that was that is an example of a race where I absolutely love that course. That's I love that sort of distance. It's just big mountains, you're for basically four really big climbs and descents and quite technical absolutely love that course and it happened to be a world championships as well so it was a super competitive field so that's just the example of when the stars sort of aligned and ben came third so, for those of you who don't know as well he had a very strong finish and snuck up through the top 10 into third position at the last last two or three cases of ben you took third uh, right at the top of the final descent. So I think it's still several Ks to go because there, there were big yeah, mountains. True. There was sort of a 5K descent and then a K or two running through Chamonix to come into the finish line. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, that, that was that, that was a fun descent when you've just sort of hit the podium and you just <laughs> go to, okay, got nothing to lose. <laughs> okay, that's number one. Next two, your other favourite two races. Either you've done them or uh, you'd like to do. We're, we're not fussed. Well, I'll stick to ones that I've done because that way it's less hypothetical. That UTA UTA hundred in particular has a real um, place in my heart. That I've done that one probably more times seven, than any other six. race now. Yeah, started seven times. <laughs> yeah, um, and so it's yeah. So part of that would probably be because it was my real baptism of fire into ultra running. That I was nineteen and had a spectacular DNF where you end up, you know, wrapped up in a space blanket on the side of the trail. And so that kind of experience, I think, really sort of cemented it as, you know, something as challenging in that. And so coming back each year, trying to improve on last time. And then the fact that I, I love the Blue Mountains and it, it is the most competitive race, trail race in Australia, that that all combines together. To be honest, yeah, it's an example of a course where it probably does compromise a bit in that it's not as... I, I would say, you know, in the Blue Mountains, I use something like the Hunslow Classic course probably as one that's probably I 
would if I had to go run it by myself that that probably this would be more of the sort of course that I'd be inclined towards. So that that is probably an example where I'm still putting that there in my top three, but it's an example of a race where I, you know, um, those other factors are playing in more than just the raw course itself. Yeah, so that's two. Number three? Number three, probably I've got a few sort of... It's always hard making these lists <laughs> that part of me wants to put... Um, either the Karawa or Pomona King of the Mountain in there. Yeah. where the, And so that's 5K that. and 8K, that these are then just really short, sharp mountain races, just really fun, really steep, really technical. And that's sort of the example of, as I said, where I like to sort of mix up in distances that you've got the ultras where it is that sort of long grind and then, yeah, trying to go fast and trying to fly downhill is its own sort of uh, challenge and its own kind of fun. So... Though I think I'll probably put those up, but I've got a few other ones sort of tossing around in the back of my head that I shot over Moonlight Mountain Marathon yeah, where that was just really beautiful. Actually, the Hong Kong, um, the Nine mm-hmm. Dragons 50K course, I really, where it's just a lot, it's just a lot of stairs and it absolutely uh, kicked my <laughs> butt on the day. Like I was cramping really badly. I'd, I had a bit of a knee injury going in and I wasn't prepared well for stairs at all, but I just still loved that course. So... Yeah, like there, there's a bunch of sort of races there that really so enjoy. It's a big variety from 5Ks to, to 100Ks, from Hong Kong to Mont Blanc to Blue Mountains. <laughs> That's a big range. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Simon, tell us why you race and what you know. what's your ideal race? Why do I race? Um, I think similar to, to Ben, and there is that, that edge of doing stuff that you can't replicate in training. Um, you certainly... And that's and that's not just you know the speed or, or or the effort that you put into it, but just even the distance as the type of stuff that we're talking about doing is ultras. Uh, you really are going to experience that in your training, as we've talked about in the past. You know the the longest long run you may do may not come close to the distance that you go or the time that you're going to uh, be out there in a in in a race. And I love that experience, that feeling of being out there for for a long time where you've got a hundred miles generally speaking would be something I look at and then you are talking about it being at least you know you're going to go through the day you're going to go through the night it's that kind of adventure that experience that that excitement uh, which you don't really replicate um, in training so it's uh, yeah it's that the adventure and the fun of doing it I think as well yeah and what would be your top three races that you've done and why yeah, I was just racking my brains there because there's so many, as Ben was saying. Um, I've got old favourites that then have kind of been superseded by by newer ones. Uh, the, the Great North Walks, the GNW, was the one that I did year after year, uh, four years, and that's where I kind of felt like I honed my sort of 100-mile skills going from around about 36 hours when I really felt like I was just a tourist going along with a friend of mine more as a dare. Um, and then gradually in subsequent years, like knocking three hours off every year until I was running and finishing in the top five, four, three sort of thing, um, which was, you know, and then by then I was running 12 hours faster than my previous, than, than my first experience. Again, looking for, at the time it was touted as being a, you know, Australia's toughest hundred miler. Um, and that's what, that's what drew me to it. Uh, and I think then subsequently, 
moving on and looking outside of that, then I, yeah, then it gets very interesting because then there's a whole, you realize there's a world of competitiveness and now you feel a little bit more confident and now you actually, you're not just turning up to see if you can finish, but you're wanting to see how you can perform against the course uh, and against other people that you've now become familiar with. Um, and yeah, so... I guess then I, I looked out to Northburn in North, uh, New Zealand and that was probably a one where for the first time instead of, you know, it, it went up to sort of 10,000 metres uh, and as a 100 mile over 10,000 metres I felt like then I was I was properly in a, a different type of race and working my way through a field there and... You just top a, 10 there, Simon? Top five, yeah. Top five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a good, and that, and that was again. It was one of those races where it all just came together. I was patient. I watched people run away from me. I timed it nicely. I didn't have tickets on myself that anything was good was going to happen, and it gradually just reeled people in, and it was so much fun. And it was, <laughs> I loved it. It was brilliant. <laughs> but again, that's one of those kind of shamrock loop type races where yeah. it's yeah so that was that was an interesting one because gs gnw had certainly been a, an a to b in its in, in its incarnation when i did it so um yeah and i think north, north burn became a favorite then it's a big it's a toss-up between see the great southern endurance race which was uh in its first incarnation in 2017 was probably threw me back on my ass and really made me actually look at what really gnarly races were but without it and without it i wouldn't have been able to do some other races things like bob graham yeah, but nice. to top it off i'd think the ultra to uh the monterosa that one uh, of course just blew my mind and i would never have been able to do that race had i not done gser for its gnarliness and, and bob graham but to go across four 3,000 metre passes to be running across glaciers uh, it was yeah it was just something unbelievably spectacular it was something and, and different to UTMB a, a completely different race to that uh, yeah it's it's a traverse around a mountain a big mountain but um, but a completely different type of race to, to UTMB and uh, yeah that just stands out as one of the just a memory I will never it was hard as hell but <laughs> I'll never forget that. It was something else, that race. How much does the, the field determine in your racing choices in terms of, you know, low-key races with a fairly small field or bigger high-profile races, or does it not matter? I, I, I don't know. So I, I think for, for, for initially, not at all, because I, I just was going there. As to, just to, but as, as I got more and more sort of experienced, I did then want to try and see where I could feel finish within the field and you do become I'd be lying if I said that I I, I didn't care about that because you do start to to know who's in the race and you're looking around and uh, yeah so it, it, it wouldn't determine whether I was going in a race or not but um but it's certainly something that you do look at and think oh that'd be I have a crack at that one <laughs> <laughs> something extra to spur you on yeah, yeah, yeah yeah for sure for sure yeah awesome yeah, so um, I talked a little bit in the last podcast um, about the types of races I like, but I'll, I'll quickly summarise. Now, for me, similar to Simon, it's all about the adventure, point-to-point um, -point courses or big loops I prefer. And for me, racing's a means of exploring a country or a terrain or a mountain range or, or something like that, rather than clocking up 100 miles. Like, you know, I would never do 
um, you know, a four-lap, 100-mile race. Um, just couldn't see the point. Um, what about Barkley? No. <laughs> no? Even that's not nah, tempting look, as a loop Barclay's, race? Barkley's not, not, not a running race. And anybody who knows Barkley no. knows that it's not yeah. a running race. Um, and as much as I like to step outside my comfort zone, I think it gets to a point where you realise that's so far out that it's a different thing altogether. Um, it's okay to be comfortable yeah, sometimes. I, I mean, Barclay's <laughs> it's a different about, beast. It is. It's about orienteering. It's about you know hiking lots. It's about finding pages under roots and rocks. <laughs> it's not a running race. So for me, it's more about the terrain and more about discovering somewhere. Um, I don't tend to worry too much about the field. Like it doesn't really bother me whether it's got two thousand competitors or fifty mm. competitors. I've done done races with both. Um, if the, if that race takes into account some terrain that I want to explore, then I couldn't care yeah. less whether it's a a low profile race, low profile race, or a high profile race, um, and it's also unlike Ben, I, I prefer the longer ones. Pretty similar to you, someone like I, I haven't done too many short races. Um, in fact, I don't think I've even done a hundred k race. Oh, I've done hundred k. I've done a hundred k road race. I haven't done a hundred k trail race before. Um, all my trail races have either been much longer or a couple of shorter ones. Um, to my mind, if I'm going to be out there on the trails for eight hours, I may as well be out there for 24 hours. Um, seems like a, a better use of my training fitness. Um, but we're all different. That's that's you know that's the point of discussing this between the three of us, just to you know highlight how different people think about racing in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. And even there, we all are occupying a relatively small niche still. There's a <laughs> bit of variation in distance and that, but. Obviously, we haven't. None of us have said road races, track races. We got the backyard ultras, multi days, all of those sort of things that are well, multi day stage races, and that that Mm. all of those are, you know, perfectly good, good sort of events. And it just happens that that's not our personal niche. Yep, true. Um, My three favourite races: um, UTMB um, was my second ultra, and just. Had an awesome race, awesome scenery, awesome atmosphere. You know, anybody who's ever raced UTMB and had a good race there, I'm sure it's probably in their top three of all time. I think one thing interesting that um, mentioned atmosphere, and probably none of us mentioned it there yet, but one of the things with big and, you know, typically then competitive races is, although, you know, it's not necessarily about the hype per se, but it attracts a lot of people. And that can really build up the atmosphere, mm-hmm. and that in itself is its own can be its own appeal. Other people find that very off-putting. They'd rather be, you know, alone in the bush for hours and like and like the whole, you know, you come over the line and it's just you and your crew, and you get a a coffee mug for your twenty-four hours of hard work, and that's that's fantastic. Like that's it's yeah, those can be yeah, different yeah, yeah. appeals as yeah, well. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. And I've had both. I've had both extremes. Like UTMB is one of my favourite. Uh, but then I, I won a couple of races in the UK, Hardmores and Pennine Challenge, and both of them were very low-key kind of races. Um, Pennine Challenge, I crossed the finish line, and the only people at the finishing line was the two organisers and my wife Catherine and the St John's first aid guy. That was all that was at the finish line. Um, but no, I didn't mind that at all. And Hardmores was similar, had a few more people at the finishing line, but another very low-key race. Um Another race I really, really did like, which is not running anymore, unfortunately, is Big Red Run. You mentioned stage race. Oh, race again. Yeah. 
I've only done one stage race and, and that was a big red run and I had an absolute blast out there. Mm. Um, really enjoyed the, the stage race um, type. You know, you, you run four hours in the morning and spend the rest of the time just sitting around talking to runners, watching other runners come back in and do it again the next day. Um, and how much of that would you say is that you enjoyed like the course and the racing while you're actually out there running and how much was it, you know, the fact that it's you and these band of what was it like a hundred, yeah, hundred and fifty people, people yeah. hundred people that, you know, sort of building that, you know, that bond and the out, you know, talking shop basically afterwards. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I, I quite like deserts. I've always been interested in exploring deserts. Um, I've been into Sahara and deserts and the Atacama and Chile and um, in India and stuff. So I've always kind of liked exploring deserts. So, you know, a chance to explore the Simpson Desert. Um, and as you said, Ben, it, you know, places like that you can't really explore by yourself without a, a, a massive logistical kind of preparation. So race is really the only way you can explore that kind of environment in depth. Um, so I really, did really enjoy that. But, you know, it's hard to separate that versus the camaraderie um, you get from hanging around with like-minded people for, for six days in a row going through that um so yeah really enjoyed that and probably the last race um i really really enjoyed it and one of the few races i'm keen to go back on is the yarrabilla race in adelaide um i'm from adelaide originally and it's just a nice 56 kilometer um jaunt through the adelaide hills and it's just got a bit of everything in there hills are really really nice most of them are runnable uh, really good atmosphere not not like uta atmosphere but the, you know it's a smaller number of races but they the volunteers are very very enthusiastic and um, great course one of those races you can do and you're done in five hours or whatever so you, you can back up from pretty quickly um but yeah just just a really really fun race so that's my top three so um hopefully that's given you you listeners a bit of an insight into the different kinds of races that we enjoy and why but let's, let's kind of help you guys out now and talk about how you select races, how you can plan your racing calendar out, how many races is too many, should you be doing more or less, and what kind of races you should be doing. Before we do that, though, we've got to really define what your race goals are. Um, and you can probably split them into two different categories. You've got the people who focus on one or two key races in a year and that's more me i tend to pick one maybe two races and that's my sole focus versus people who think and i want to get out and explore race as often as i can so they might have four or five or even six races throughout the year that they're keen on on doing well at um so i I think you need to think about which type you fall into because it does affect your race choices. But let's just kind of get a definition from the guys in terms of what an A race is. Um, ben, first of all, what's an A race to you? How do you define your A races? I would usually define an A race that it's going to be what you're really f- focusing the training towards. And so, and, and honestly, it would usually be the, it's what you're focusing training towards for it, probably a minimum of three months, probably, yeah, at least sort of three to six months. That is really what you're focusing the training towards. And any other races that come in there are either building up towards it or they're there as training runs and it's sort of th- things are not meant to, or it depends how, again, sort of. If you're, you know, if you're going to the Olympics as an A race, there's probably going to be, you're not going to compromise at all on anything. Everything is 100% geared towards it. Other people will have, I guess, what you'd sort of call a softer sort of A race where it's like, yeah, that's the focus. But if I miss out on, you know, one or 2%, I'm not 
you know, that's not the end of the world sort of thing. But it really is that it, it stands above the other races around it for at least sort of, yeah, that sort of three to six months. And how many, period. how many A races would you, for you personally, not your clients, but you, are you as an athlete, how many A races would you kind of plan for a year? As I said there, sort of, I'm thinking sort of three to six months worth of each. So probably one or two that I would really personally label as my A races that I am training towards and sometimes it would be even sort of only be one in that it's like i'm happy to sort of say yeah for that year that is my a race and even though you might have several months earlier what is kind of a big race in my sort of almost call it an a minus race where it's like okay it's still <laughs> not meant to compromise that uh, that other one it is sort of is sort of slot thinking big picture how does that all slot in towards that other focus yeah and so for you for example then um six foot track this year would have been an a minus race and uh, uca was obviously yeah. an a race yeah yeah yep but that that would sort of be an example we're still a competitive and race and that and so in training in one sense was get but it was sort of designed that okay you're thinking about what is the training we want to do towards uta and okay this race actually fits in really well with that plan yeah yep. simon what about yourself how many a races do you typically like to do in a year yeah, I think it comes down to a lot of factors. I think probably when I first started one race a year, that was the big deal. Uh, the honest truth is, I think, unlike a 10K or a half marathon, where if you get something wrong, you can modify in a couple of months. As I got older, I started to realise that waiting for 12 months to learn from the mistakes I'd made from the previous race started to be too long to wait for 12 months I'm getting too old to wait <laughs> and so I wanted to then definitely have at least two uh, and so for, for, for a few years I was certainly bookending the year so having one maybe in March maybe one in November um, again because it did it came down to experience and I, re I realised that the more I did that I could learn from my mistakes and I started to get better at nutrition or running through aid stations or all of the things that you just as we said before the reason you race is to to practice this is, is to be able to experience those things i wanted to experience it more than just a one holiday a year and it was the chance to do it more um it also comes down to expense uh, i think yeah. for the majority of us it, it, it it's not a cheap endeavor uh, by the time especially here in australia you could have geographically a lot a long distance to travel so that's flights that's accommodation that's taking time off work uh, trying to tell your family that you're going to go on your own personal holiday more than once or twice a year <laughs> unless you you know it, it's it's not yeah. it's not the cheapest thing to do so for a while you know having people who would help and support me and you know small amounts of sponsorship that certainly helped but aside from that it's it's not a cheap thing to do and um that that's that certainly has got its limitations as well but as far as an air race goes yeah I had maximum of two uh, but book ended at the uh, sort of march to november is what i've done in the past year yeah i think it depends a bit on the distance of your a races as well i mean i'm more the that's a good point actually i'm yeah. more the one a year type person i mean when i used to do ironman i used to do one ironman race a year um any other race was secondary to it and that was it when i moved into ultras i don't think i've had a year where i've done two milers in a year usually it's focus on one miler for the year um but i'm the type of guy who loves to train so you know if i didn't race for a whole year it wouldn't be the end of the world as long as i can keep training like i'm, I'm not too fast 
But <laughs> but uh, for a lot of people, racing is you know a big part of why they train. And you take away the racing, and then all of a sudden motivation to train suffers. And COVID's kind of highlighted that, that to quite a few people, mm. particularly last year. Um, so for those kind of people that do need to race a bit more often, I think then you, you've got to think about what kind of distances your A races are and how well you recover from them. So, you know, for most people doing any more than, say, 200-mile races in a year is probably too much. But if you did a 100-mile race, a 100K race, a 50K race, for example, you could probably have three A races in the year. If you said mm-hmm. three 50K races and a 100K race as you know, four A races for the year, you could probably do that if they were well spaced out. So I think there's no there's no hard and fast rules, but you've you've got to look at, as Ben said, you know, the training for an A race is really specifically a block of training designed just for that race. So in between races, is there enough time to recover, to really knuckle down and get a good training block, which is going to be eight to twelve weeks as a minimum, to get you ready for the A race? If there's less of a gap, then you're kind of kidding yourself that it's an A race because you're still kind of getting over the last race and then getting back into training again and then you're tapering again and then you're racing again. So it's not really an A race. So I think when you're looking at your A races, you've got to think about how important is the result of this race to your enjoyment of racing. And if you say, look, I really care if I finish in 14 hours or 15 hours, I just want to finish around that time. Or you go, no, I really want to go sub 14. Like I'm heavily invested in this and everything I do in the next three months, I want to be focused on sub 40. That's that's the definition of an A race. So when you're planning your season, think about the races you want to do. Think about how important the result of that matters. And then you can start to think whether it falls into the A race category or the A minus or the B race category. I have some people who want to, you know, because there there's some amazing races out there and they've got the ability to go and enter lots of races. And, oh, well, that one's just as important. And I said, well, that one's only four weeks after that one, though. Oh, I don't mind. I said, well, okay, that's fine. But you do have to acknowledge that it is going to have some fatigue aspect to it, whether you, <laughs> whether you want it to or not. And I do think that, yeah, it's, it's important to realise that it, it does have a knock-on effect. And it's how people define what A is to them. Like you say, if it's a time thing or if it's just wanting to enter it, I think then it's it's possibly maybe they need to redefine what A race means. Mm, yeah. But it's sort of one of those things that some people, when they race, or they're there to bury themselves and to give the absolute most that they can on the day. Mm-hmm. And in that's when you then need to be really careful with the spacing between races that you're not over racing. For other people, yeah. that that's not the goal is to eke out every outs of performance That's, it is more about i want to experience this terrain i want to experience this course and i, I want to finish and as we said like if it's if there's a few hours sort of difference in your finishing time not a big deal if you finish and go yeah, yeah. i could have gone a bit quicker you're still satisfied that doesn't detract from the experience yeah. anyway then yeah you can definitely race more often <laughs> yeah it's the definition of what you think is able to them yeah i think i get i get it particularly for my sydney clients um, they kind of get into the habit of doing the same races year in, year out. Um, and after a while, kind of, I, I always ask them, it's like, why do you race? And you know, what do you want to get out of racing? And instead of just entering the same old races they've raced before, I think you need to start thinking about, well, is that is doing this race for the fourth time or fifth time uh, in five years really what I want to be spending my racing energy on? Or do I want to do something a little bit different? 
So I think it's always important to every year reassess why you race, what you want to get out of racing, and then look ahead and see well, are there any other races um, around that might fit that bill better this year and not just get locked into the same races year in, year out. Not that there's anything wrong with doing the same races year in, year out if that's what you want to do. Um, before we move <laughs> off A races, I just wanted to throw two different scenarios for us to discuss. One is the the problem that we saw... Quite a little bit less so now, but for for a, a time kind of in the last kind of five ten years, it's been quite a few high profile athletes, particularly American athletes, that have succumbed to over racing and, and have spent like years out of the sport because they've just been absolutely smashed. Mm. So on one hand, you've got these elites who are racing at a high level, you know, racing every four or five weeks, hundred k, eighty k, hundred mile, and burning themselves out. But on the flip side of that, you've got people, and I know I could probably list four or five of my, my clients who do this, particularly in a place like Hong Kong, when there's a large number of races in a short period of time, where they might race 100k every three or four weeks and appear to do quite well and do that year in, year out. So how do you balance, how do you know where you fit in that frame of things? You know, How do you know whether you're the type of person that if you race often, you're going to burn out? versus the type of person who can race often and appears to do well, but not burn out? Like what criteria do we kind of think about is it applies in those situations? Ben, any thoughts? So I think I touched on that a little bit earlier where it depends a bit on how how deep are you going to, into the well every time when you race and that when you're talking about high-profile elites chances in super competitive races, chances are they are having to really push up towards their physiological limits every time. And so that's obviously going to, um, yeah, that, that then needs longer to recover from. If you're, and, and it's sort of one of those things, not to say that the other people doing relatively well at other races aren't pushing hard per se, but it's sort of one of those things when you're getting up close to those limits, those extra few percent really do make a difference. Another big thing is then what are you doing in between those races that are you trying to train, are you racing frequently and trying to train hard because that you probably need, you probably more need to pick one that the people who can successfully race with a bit higher frequency might not be actually training as quite as hard as you might suspect between those races because they're just more recovering and those races are their main training stimuli. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, given we're talking about the front of the pack in, and you know, and talking about speed of recovery in a sport in which there is little drug testing, you always need to look at a sceptical eye of sometimes if people uh, uh, you know, seem to recover so much quicker than everyone else. Um, that's just an unfortunate reality at the sport it is, we're unfortunately, in. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, so there's always that. And then I, I guess also you need to look at, yeah, as I was saying, you look at the competitiveness of the fields that they're racing, really, because sometimes in, in this sport you can have fields that aren't that competitive and so people can be up the front and it looks like they're, you know, racing really hard and putting down these big performances and you sort of look at, well, where actually does this sit in the world rankings and world stands? And you sort of go, oh, okay, mm -hmm. actually it wasn't as competitive as you might think and so they weren't having to dig as quite as deep as you might have otherwise suspected yeah it's always the case like at 100k you know if you could stop racing after 80k you could recover a lot quicker than if you stop racing at, like i did the whole 100k it's the last 10 or 20k that really cement the damage in your legs and and force the extra recovery so if you're able to back off 
because you're you know you're, you're way out in front or mm. third's not where anyone has seen and, and fifth so far behind you that it doesn't matter, then yeah you can recover a lot quicker. I think the other point for people who do race often is you've got to look at whether any of those races are more important than the others. Because if you've got a series of races kind of four or five weeks apart, then if you do a 100k race, you've got to have, you know, 10 days, very easy recovery. And then you've only got two and a half weeks till the next race. So it's only really a week of training and then you're tapering again. Now, if you put kind of two or three of those in a row over a two or three month period, you've only got about three or four weeks of training in three months. The rest has either been racing, tapering or recovery, which is fine if you just want to race regularly, but if you want to build up to a peak performance kind of later on in the season, then that's not going to work. Because although you do get some adaption from racing, um, when you're doing so little training in amongst that, you're not going to be as well placed as if you'd done less racing and trained more consistently. So I think when, when you want to do a whole lot of races, you've got to think about, are any of those races more important than others? And if, those race, if the more important race is further towards the end of the season, then you've really got to question the races you're doing before that and say, look, if that race is really the most important race, I really need to have a decent training block before that and therefore maybe skip a race or two. Um, but I know some people don't really care. Some people just want to race often. Um, but as long as you're aware of the implications of that in terms of recovery, in terms of lack of training and that your performance might actually go down slightly because of that, then that's fine. Now, we all race for different reasons. You just need to understand the implications of what you're doing. Yeah, I think as we sort of will keep sort of touching back on, there are no right or wrong answers to why you race or what these priorities are. It's just about making informed choices. Yeah, yeah. Understanding. And I think you just said there that that importance is, is that one more important and by definition that is how do people define what is an A or a B race then and if you're having three or four races so close to each other you're already kind of redefining yeah. what is an A race because <laughs> in, in a sense then are they not by definition falling into the B category or C category or in fact is there not even an A race there is it just you like to race and it's, it's then not structured well, in that sense to, to very well to the next topic is what do we define as a B race Simon, what's the definition of a B race? If an A race is something that, you know, you really want to lock in at least kind of three months of training and and it's the race that you're highly emotionally invested in and really want to do well at, what's a B race? I would probably define it as, depending on where you are in the training, it would more likely be something that's shorter, um, but possibly have similar terrain because your training hasn't got you to the point where you are at where you want to be for your A race so you may go and do a 50 or an 80k race if you're going to do 100 mile um, I hesitate to say that doing 100k is a good B race for a 100 mile race because it again depends mm-hmm. on what the intensity is but you may just like being out there so it could be an opportunity to practice the things that we've said but I still think that's probably you know pushing it a little bit depending on how far apart the two things are so I'd say that a B race is definitely something which is similar but of less importance less intensity or possibly less distance depending on what it is that you want to get from it but again very very tempting for lots of people as soon as the number goes onto the singlet or onto the t-shirt to get people to treat it as a training run um because it does become a race it's your b race so again as spencer before how far are you uh, you're taking from yourself do you know what i mean what what is it that you are actually putting into this and then what is the distance between 
that race and the A race. I think that could be a, a big defining thing. You could go hard as um, for a 50 or, you know, K race, knowing that you've still got two months before your, your, your A race and you'd obviously recover well from that. Yeah, yeah. I would probably, because it's always a hard one to find, as we said, some people might, you could argue, never have an A race because they never dedicate, you know, a several month training yes. block towards a race. In which case, I would sort of more probably lean towards defining B races as being ones where, sort of defining by the time which you are willing to dedicate mm. towards sort of tapering and recovering for it that if it's a race which yeah you maybe you'll take a week easier leading into it and then maybe a week or two you know easier leading out of it and perhaps training isn't necessarily geared towards it it may fit in well with you know building up to other things and with what training is doing but you know you might you're not going to be uh, the, the, specific, the specificity of training isn't necessarily going to be there for it. And so I'd probably yeah. usually more, yeah, use that sort of operational definition because otherwise it can be sort of hard for those who, yeah, if you just want to race often and you are racing every few weeks, then arguably every race is then under this classification system, a B race. Even if you yeah. are putting in max effort, you've just dialed yeah. down the, dif- well, the yeah. distance or that of the race such that you know that, hey, I can bounce back from this within a week completely i think the other thing with b races too is the and you kind of alluded to it ben is the, the taper going into it because if you if you've got say a, a 30 to 50k trail race that's a b race now if you made that an a race you'd probably taper 10 14 maybe even uh, three weeks so you're super fresh come race day whereas if it's a b race then probably seven days is enough now subconsciously you're just not going to be able to push as hard for the B race because your legs just aren't as fresh. So it doesn't matter how consciously you want to push, the legs are going to go, look, we've still got some training in our legs. We're just not, we're just not going to go as fast because we're still a little bit tired. So I think with B races, if, if you go in with less of a taper, you just can't push as hard anyway. Um, so I think for B races, that's, that's one criteria I use. It's like a short taper shouldn't be too much of a recovery like any more than two weeks i think then you're kidding yourself it's a b race because then you're missing out on more training for your Mm -hmm. a race so i think and that kind of defines the distance because some people a 50k race might mean three or four weeks recovery for other people a week later and they're pretty much back to their baseline training levels so you've got to think about your own recovery ability um as for what kind of distances a b race could be there's some exceptions to that, like if, if you've had either little experience in 100k, 100 miler, or you've had some experience and have found that your stomach, for example, is just no good at all, and you get the thought of doing another 100k or another 100 mile race and spending the last 10 hours throwing up and walking because you've got no energy just doesn't really appeal, then you might say, well, this B race is 70k's, or it is 50 miles, or maybe it's even 100k's. But I just want to do a race where I don't have any pressure to really nail it. I don't, like, there's no kind of silver buckle for beating a time. There's just, the cutoffs are generous. I just want to do 100Ks and test my stomach out. So when I'm spending all this money to fly to wherever the race is, I'm a bit more confident that my stomach can handle it. So I I wouldn't normally suggest longer races as B races, but, you know, as we always say, it just depends. There may be reasons for doing a longer race as a B race. That ability to learn, as I was saying before, entering one race a year was just not yeah. enough time for me to learn. And chucking in a one like that, that you say, we call it, you know, you're building your experience. It's, I want another opportunity to learn something that I can't yeah. learn in training. 
and I guess then all this knocks onto then. So we, we've thrown the term C race out there as well, where we've sort of had this operational definition where, okay, for a B race, you're looking at maybe a week taper and one or two weeks to recover. C race, reduce that down to days where, you know, you maybe have a two to three day taper and then, you know, two to three day recovery period. Probably by the following weekend, you're basically back into regular training. And again, that may, so that will either be because you dial down the intensity. Some people, for instance, will do a 50K C race because they're training for a hundred miler and they're doing 50K. They might be doing some 50K training runs and it's just more convenient to do it in a race setting for some of those, yeah, for those logistics that we mentioned and just more motivating, get to run it with your mates maybe. So you, you, you can't necessarily allocate distance if you're, more inclined towards no, I if I'm putting on if I turn up to race, I turn up to race, then and you're going to be going all out. Then you know it might only be five, ten k events where you can, uh, or some people even half marathon they can bounce back pretty quickly depending on the type of terrain and the course. So those sort of shorter races in that way you can still get that maximal effort, but you recover relatively quickly. Yeah, I think for those kind of races, you know what I typically with my clients is. Now, they might do a speed session Tuesday and a hill session Thursday or Friday. So all we really do is the speed session Tuesday is just a little bit easier. It's still a fairly solid session. You skip the session on Thursday or Friday, just an easy run. And then obviously you skip your long run and do the race on Sunday. And then three days later, instead of doing a normal speed session, you do an easy run. And then you're back into it by the end of the week. So you've only really just yes. given up a long run and swap your speed session for a race. That's it. Um for the, your point there, Ben, on those people doing longer C races, like 50K races, really there's no change. You know, you'll probably do your, your normal Tuesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday hard runs. Instead of your long run on Sunday, you do a long race, and then you might have Tuesday as an easy run instead of a, a hard session, and then you're back into it again. Um, because if you need any more than that, then you really, it becomes a B race. So I think you've just got to... Which is what I, I think that's what I was going to say. It's that thing of when someone says they're going to do it as a training and they're not sure if it's going to be training, don't let them back off in the week. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure that when they turn up on not race day, that they've got enough fatigue in their legs that they can't yeah, race. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, not, not to that degree, obviously, because you're not trying to get someone injured and you're looking after them and you're going to reduce it a little bit. But you're not going to have that usual terror, no. jokes aside. You know, you got, you got to, to an element, you're going to at least have something there that says that I am not completely fresh-legged and a wound-up spring. It's also where it comes to, so you've got to know thyself. <laughs> Can you actually put ego aside yeah. and do that? And there have... And and most people are pretty yeah I'm exactly and then sometimes sometimes there's a coach therapy times that you just veto you just no, go man. no I know you're not going to take that easy like you, you say you will but as soon as no. you put a bib on you're exactly. going to want to race and this pins and this numbers and look, yeah are very as you fast. say you're like that I'm definitely like that if I yeah so it, it's fine there's nothing wrong with that it's just know thyself yeah definitely unless you I, sometimes what I'd say to people if you're going to go and support another friend. Run a race yep, yep. and run it with somebody. So, so you've you've then got a barometer that says you're not allowed to because you've made it you've made it packed with somebody else. People running with a partner, people running with a friend, someone who's just there as, as support. That's a good way of the whole experience thing coming as a tr- genuine training run. But you've got something which is physically going to restrict or you know just just put that speed restrictor on you and say no, that's where you're going. I think also it's really important to, as Ben said, first of all know yourself. But also then, if you've committed to a race, what are your goals for that race? 
whether it's an A, B or C race. And, and C races particularly, like, if it's a 10K trail race, then just hamming yourself. Like, it's 10Ks. It's done within 40, 50, 60 minutes. It's, it's just like a hard training session. But if it's 20 or 30K or 40K or 50K, then, you know, what are the goals for that race? You know, if you've got a coach, talk it over with your coach. If you're not sure, if you haven't got a coach, then what are you trying to get out of this race? How much training time are you prepared to sacrifice in recovery? You know, if, if you're trying to treat it as a training race, well, then what do you hope to achieve from it? How hard do you want to push? Um, what do you want to test out? Do you want to test out nutrition? Do you want to test out pacing strategies? Do you want to test out mental strategies? Are you trying to work on your downhill technique? You know, what is it you're really trying to get out of a C race or a B race? I think too few of us kind of just think, oh, okay, I'll, I'll enter 100K and six weeks before that, I'll do a 50K, then I'll, there's this 20K race this weekend and a 15K race that weekend. I'll enter all these and they just go out and do them without really thinking about, well, what's the purpose behind this? How can I maximize this experience to grow myself as an athlete so I can take that experience with me to the next race and the next race and the next race? I think we kind of get caught up on the treadmill of just racing, racing, racing sometimes. And it's important to think about why you're doing these races. Yeah, because as we said, there's nothing wrong with racing, racing, racing if the purpose is to race. To You enjoy the community yeah. atmosphere. You enjoy that uh, community and all of that. That's great. Like that's there, Yeah, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And we certainly encourage that for many people. And so, but it's just knowing what that is. It's sitting down and contemplating what, what am I doing this for? Yeah, my short, my short time back in the UK where I had, I went back for you know two years for for a year two years ago, and there was just so much more access to where I am in Australia currently, and sometimes people weren't just racing regularly; they were racing every week, and sometimes the opportunity to race twice in a weekend. I swear, and it was because they absolutely loved just the experience of racing and going, and and also the races are much yeah, cheaper over there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think for those kind of people, like you know. As long as they're aware of the trade-offs they're making by racing more frequently, then it's up to them. And I had a client, a couple of clients the other day that said, look, I've got this race on this weekend. There's a race the weekend beforehand. What distance do you think I can do? Now, the main race was a 80-kilometer race. The, the race the weekend before was either a 20 or a 50 or a 100. It's like, well, you could do the 20 the weekend beforehand and it probably wouldn't impact the 80 that much. The 50 would. But then it depends on what your goals are for those races. So I think as a coach, whenever a client says to me, look, you know, is this too many races or is this enough gap or whatever between races? First thing I say was, what do you want to get out of the races? And you've got to understand that racing more frequently means you're not going to be able to perform closer to your your maximum potential as if you raced less frequently Um other than that, there's no right or wrongs in terms of racing more often, as long as you understand the implications yeah. of it. If you want to race more often, yeah. absolutely go for it. But I also do think you've got to keep in mind that racing at a relatively high intensity frequently, you are playing with the with the odds, so to speak, of a bit of burnout later on. Um, and so I would always recommend a, a period of downtime where you go, okay, no racing for the next three months. Just back it off mentally and physically give yourself a chance to recover um and just kind of help define the season that way i think it's important all right what about some um, non-complementary races so by by this i mean you know, sometimes i'll get a question andy look i've got i want to do a sub three marathon road marathon but i want to train for a 100k trail race 
how do we kind of balance to opposing kind of nature of those races in a training program and frequency and gaps between the races like how how much time post a marathon would you give for a trial race and vice versa so that comes down to often looking at what what is the priority uh is one more important than the other that certainly there are cases where i've had clients who you know it might be a three-week difference because they the road marathon was not a priority they just wanted to do it because they're doing it with friends or something like that and so okay we'll use that as one of your long training runs basically because the time doesn't matter if you're looking to run the fastest possible marathon you possibly can then you probably again there's a true a race well then you need to be realistic that's going to take three to six months of dedicated training and you're going to take a fair while to recover from that as well and so then they would need to be quite spaced out so a big part there would be looking at okay what are the what is the priority are you prepared to compromise on one in order to get the other from there then it can be though if there are you know sort of they've got okay if they are reasonably spaced out but you know one's yeah one's flat road one's hilly mountains and stuff like that it's more about then okay we're needing to touch on in training uh a bit of flat speed and a bit of uh mountain sort of worked simultaneously in that and it may not be you know this hypothetical optimal for either one though that's always debatable like it's always hard when you get chase go chasing the ghost of optimization um and so yeah just making sure that you've got this well-rounded athlete who can perform well on both but yeah a big one is uh, i think just up front looking at what is the spacing and how which one is the priority or are they on equal footing yeah i know i've got uh, had quite a few athletes wanting to do both and what i tend to do particularly if the races are relatively close to each other and by close i'm meaning you know, within two months because you know if you're going to do a hard road marathon you're going to need two to three weeks recovery before you even think about racing or training hard again so you know if you've got a road marathon in say october and your 100k race is december then there's not enough time post the marathon to really develop 100k trail race mountain fitness from october to december you've got to have that in your legs before the marathon um so what i tend to do is alternate week week by week so like one weekend you'll have a long flat road run and a short trail run and the following week you'll have a long mountainous trail run the next day is a shorter flat road run so as you said ben it's not optimal but it's kind of getting the best of both worlds in your legs and long as you understand that you are compromising both of them you're compromising a marathon and you're compromising the trail race afterwards absolutely fine how much of a compromise is where the debate comes in because you know you'll always hear some guys said oh my mate did did a marathon four weeks before 100k and he pb'd his marathon and he pb'd his 100k it's like yeah that that's fine but you know when you say pb his marathon like how many marathons did he run like had he run 10 marathons and he's gone from 320 and now he's at 258 and he's all of a sudden run 250 or had he run two marathons, his first one was four hours, his second one was 3.40, and now he's run <laughs> 3.20. So there's a big difference in PPing those two different situations. One right. was just because he trained better and raced better, and that you know improving from 3.40 to 3.20 doesn't take much, whereas improving from someone who's run 10 marathons, taking an extra three or four minutes off their time, that's a, that's a big, big improvement. And very very hard to do and the only way to really get an improvement in a marath- road marathon 
if you've already run a number of well-run marathons, is to really focus on that. So yes, it is possible to PB on both, but you've got to look at where you're coming from as to whether it's realistic for you to PB on both. And ask yourself, well, how many marathons have I done? What's my goal in this marathon? Um, how close to my potential was the last marathon? And you might say, well, last marathon was my third marathon. I blew up massively at 30K, and the last 10K was like 30 seconds per K slower than what I know I can run. So the chances of you PBing a marathon are, are probably pretty good. Or you might say, well, the last marathon I did, I thought I had a really, really good race. The time predictions was 3.05, I ran 3.07. So, okay, your chances of PBing another marathon on a mixture of trail and marathon training is much, much slimmer. So, again, I think you've got to think about what are your goals for that race? How much effort do you think you need to put into improving your PB if that's a goal. And the same goes for, for a trail marathon. Like if, if you've done a particular race, let's say UTA or Hong Kong 100, and you've done it five or six times, and you've gone 15, 14, 40, 14, 10, 13, 50, and you say, I want to PB my 100K mountain race four weeks after my marathon, you can say, well, you're probably not going to do it because you've run that race five or six times. You've knocked time off every time. To PB it means you really need to run to your potential and running a flat road marathon four weeks beforehand is really going to impact on that. So yes, there's always examples of people PBing things and running races regularly and doing really well, but you've got to look behind that and see where they're coming from from a race point of view and from a training point of view. Well, I say also with a bit of almost a caveat that is always depend. it depends and there can be counter examples and that. And one would be sometimes people may still all, or, you know, be quite an experienced athlete, but almost be stuck in a bit of a rut with their training and have, suddenly having this different stimulus. And that was actually why they then PB'd in both, that they just got, they threw in a different yep. stimulus, they responded really well. And the reason yeah. they PB'd in the second race was that they were just fitter, all-round better athlete. And that, okay, the specificity of training might not have quite been there for that second race, but they were just so much fitter that they still ended up doing well. So that's certainly a plausible explanation as well sometimes. Yeah, that, that's where you look back on what training you've done and how effective it's been. I mean, I'll give you an example. A client of mine ran a 2.30 marathon. Now, when he ran that 2.30 marathon, he was doing 150, 160 kilometers a week, all very marathon-specific training. Now, the chances of him PBing that marathon by doing a mixture of road and trail training, very, very slim. Because he did so well in that initial 2.30 marathon, he's going to, to do any better, he's going to really take some more focused half marathon races 10k races getting that speed and speed up but you know if you've run if you've always done a mixture of trail and, and road training and you've done your marathons on that then you're right Ben doing getting yourself overall fitter generally fitter overall may be the key kind of uh, factor that takes you from a, a 310 to a 3 so there, there are no hard and fast rules of this and I think you know just because your mate did it doesn't mean you can do it and vice versa just because your mate couldn't do it doesn't mean that you can't do it you just got to be honest with yourself and not not live in some pie in the sky fantasy world that um just by trying harder you can do things you've, you've got to look at your training and recovery and think about what's going to work best for you all right anything more on non-complementary races before we move on no i think that's sort of touching on it because yeah it's always going to depend a bit on what yeah, what the A race is and what the non-complementary race is. Yeah, no, I was. I, my thoughts there were just this. 
when you're talking flat road marathons, regardless of their location, they are flat and they are road. And there's essentially less variables. So if you ha- I have got a very experienced person, their margin of, of difference between improvement is going to be smaller. Um, yeah. I think when it comes to doing mountainous um, terrain where... Uh, weather factors in mountains can change. You've got a you've got a, a vast amount of different types of things could, which could affect which could affect what you consider as being a success in that race. Yeah. Whereas when it comes to flat road marathon, tends to be the time. Oh, yeah. That's it. Yeah. It's not well. You know, I had a good race. Be, what, how do you define good race? Generally, it's it's I, I got this PB or this time and those margins if you're an experienced person who's done a number of races in the three hour or the four hour or the two whatever it was the 230 is your thing that's the only metric you're judged by whereas the difference with mountain races is you could have had an absolute blinder and it might not be as fast as your previous PB yeah. but on the day depending on what the conditions were like what the weather was like it could have been 35 40 degrees centigrade do you know what I mean and, and you still ran a great time so it, it's and I mean obviously weather can be a, a factor in road racing too but there's less I think yeah. so the complementary race then would, would would change a little I think I always say to people the difference between marathon runners and ultra runners is the questions you ask at the end of the race for marathon runners the first thing you ask is what time did you do for ultra runners the first mm. thing you ask is how did your race go uh, I think that, yeah. that yeah. defines it pretty well one thing I will say though before we move on is that um, I think for some people doing a road marathon can really improve their trail ultra performance. Um, I oh, think that mm, the speed 100%. you gain from doing a road marathon can help, but, but also the, the ability to run nonstop relatively quickly for a long period of time can translate very well into the latter stages of 100k or 100 milers. So even though a road marathon may initially appear to be a non-complementary race, I think for some people it can actually be you know, the stepping stone towards a trail ultra PB if it's placed at the right time of the <laughs> training. Now, when I say right time, I'd probably, if you could create a, a training calendar, a racing calendar, ideally, I'd probably give 12 to 16 weeks between your road marathon and your trail ultra because that gives enough time to fully recover from the road marathon and then take all that fitness and speed you've gained from the road training and convert it into mountain legs and get the best of both worlds. Not always possible, but I think for some people, if they're kind of hitting a bit of a, a bit of a ceiling on their trail ultra performance, doing doing a road marathon or even half marathon, it can be a good way to break through that plateau. Give that, as Ben said, give the legs a bit of a different stimulus that helps increase your performance. On the trails, there's always a combination of basically fitness and skill, and. On the roads, it's a lot more just pure fitness. And mm. sometimes, if people are being let down by that that fitness element, yeah, training for something like a road marathon for several months and just getting super super fit is going to be really really beneficial. And some trail marathons are very very runnable, and and a lot of people will go for hiking. And but if you can, and you know, fast walking and moving through extremely. But if you've got a, a fast, runnable... Yeah, exactly. And it's still a trail mountain race, there's a lot of running to be done. And at that back end, if you're a good runner, you're a good runner. And if you can run good marathon times and you've got that strength, and it's going to always work for you, for sure. I think it's, I'm going to do a big segue now almost onto sort of a new topic. And that is that sort of part of this ties in, though, that where we're discussing the benefits of doing a road marathon and that, that 
Also, when choosing calendars, picking out A, B, C races and planning out what you want to focus on, I always think a really important consideration is what kind of training do you want to do? What do you enjoy doing? Look at the time of year and weather conditions. There's yeah. certain training you might prefer to do over yeah. summer than versus over winter. And so thinking about those things. But ultimately, you're going to spend, particularly if you are picking an A race, which you're spending six months building up towards, well, if you're spending 180 days training for that one day, well, 180 is a lot bigger than one. So you, you've got to really factor in that that is, you've always got to really enjoy that process. And I think COVID in particular has really hammered that home where we're seeing every time at the moment, it's great that races are finally starting to go on here in Australia at least. But every race, basically, we're having this little dance in the few weeks beforehand of, oh, will it be on? Will it won't be? Oh, is there a lockdown? Are the borders closed, etc.? And so mm-hmm. ultimately, mm-hmm. if you've enjoyed the process, found meaning in the process, and the race gets canned, then so be it, you know? But if you... Yeah. Yeah, that if, if you just... It forces all you to process, yeah. process orientated rather than outcome orientated because all you care about is the race. Then suddenly, you know, race gets cancelled the day before and you're left there going, oh, no, I got super fit for nothing. Yeah. I always say to people that you want to be – there's two types of mountain climbers. There's a type of climber that only climbs a mountain for the view at the top and there's a type of mountain climber who climbs the mountain for the point of climbing the mountain. And the more you can be like the latter – the, the better life is because if you don't get a view at the top, if your race gets cancelled, then you've still enjoyed the climb along the way. Whereas if you're only climbing the mountain, if you're only doing the training for the race and the race gets cancelled, then it's like can seem like a, a very big letdown um, because you can't race. On that topic though, Ben, that's that's a really good really good point. I mean, two examples come to mind. The first one is yourself, um, Ben, living in um, Brisbane. Uh, most people will know Brisbane gets pretty hot and humid in, in summer. So for Ben's training in summer, we tend to stay away from super steep climbs because uh, it just gets too hot. Moving slowly, hiking up a super steep climb in 32 degrees and 90% humidity versus running faster uh, on flatter terrain and getting some kind of wind cooling effect, uh, it's, it's significant difference. So we don't tend to structure a huge ton of climbing over summer. And that no, not, not that there's too many mountain races early on, but there are some races in Australia, like Bogon Hoffman's one. And if you make the decision to do something like Bogon Hoffman, you've got to think, well, that means I've got to spend November and December doing a fair bit of vert. Is that something I want to do? You know, can I, can I suck it up and get through the humidity and the heat and enjoy that process? Or maybe I don't want to do it. And the other example is people who say, look, I'm, I've got all this fitness and this trail running. I, I want to give a three-hour marathon a crack. You know, what, what's involved? And I say to them, look, what's involved if you really want to nail a road marathon is a shitload of road running and not much trail running. And they go, ah, ah, could I, could I still do the long run on the weekend <laughs> on the trails? Like every now and then, but no, you need to be doing 30K road runs, if not longer. They go, ah, uh, maybe I'm not so keen afterwards. So when, when you're talking about racing, as you said, Ben, you've got to think about what training is involved in preparing for that race and do you like that training? Now, I also get the opposite where people go, you know what, I know that I can't train effectively for this race, but I want to do it anyway. So, you know, I've got clients in Singapore um, who do UTMB and Tour de Jeans and uh, all these kind of races and like, you know, trying to get hills in a place like Singapore, it's possible, but 
it means a, a ton of stair reps and a ton of reps up Bukatima Hill. And, um, but they do it anyway because that's the kind of races they want to do. So sometimes you, know, you might choose a race where the training is not something you can really do, but you're going to go, you know what? It's a race I really want to do, so I'm just going to have to suffer. Uh, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Um, As I said, it's making those informed decisions, informed having decisions, that, yeah. thinking about it, having that conversation with your coach and that to sort of be like, okay, uh, what what is going to be the process involved and making sure that that's a process you want to sign on for. Yeah, definitely. That rather than just looking at, oh, that race looks awesome because there are a lot of awesome races out there. Yeah. Next thing I want to talk about is recovery. Um, how much recovery do we need from races? I mean... You know, Garmin will tell us, or not so much Garmin, well, Garmin will tell us how many hours we need recovery from a race. Um, but, you know, pretty much anyone who's looked at that will know after some easy runs you need 36 hours and some after really hard efforts they tell you 12 hours later you'll be fine. Um, well, sometimes you can just go for like a 10-minute jog that afternoon and it brings it down a whole heap. <laughs> so you're back in the game. So we don't put much faith in those metrics. Um, you might have also heard the rule that for every mile you race you need a day's recovery. <laughs> I think that's absolute garbage. Uh, so, if, you know, if you run a 26-mile marathon, you need 26 days recovery. Uh, and that might work all right for a marathon, but it doesn't work for a 50-mile or a 100-mile. It means three months recovery after a 100-mile race. Um, so it just doesn't work. So whilst there aren't any hard and fast rules, what do we think is a typical recovery period from a 100K trail race? Ballpark figures, boys. What, what, what's your guidelines? It is really going to depend on the experience of the athlete that you sort of really learn how fast as a per- given person bounce back from races. And part of that will tie into, so what is their training volume that someone who is someone who is handling hundred mile weeks goes and does a hundred K race is probably going to be able to bounce back quicker than someone who was doing 50 mile weeks because their body is just used to coping with higher volumes of work. It will depend yeah, on that experience of racing and that, that, typically sort of see that people as they race more ultras they can often recover quicker from them um caveat being also as you get older particularly uh then that you that can also sometimes slow down recovery typically slows down but that that's often more of a slower process um and then as we're sort of discussing there with the intensity of racing of are you just absolutely burying yourself versus are you finishing still able to yeah. stand um, and chat, chatting and enjoying it basically. And so that's going to have a huge difference that if you're absolutely burying yourself in that hundred K, even if you are a very experienced athlete, you're probably going to need a few weeks to of taking it quite easy before you start thinking about really, you can still be, some people may still then be running the next day where it's, you know, a 20 minute shuffle, but they're going to probably be sticking primarily to easy runs and what easy is depends on a bit on them. Um, but yeah, keeping it relatively easy for at least a few weeks, but some people, yeah, longer. Yeah, I think the other factor too is how specific your training was for the race. If you're doing a 100k mountain race and you haven't been able to get much vert in, your recovery is going to be longer than if you had got a fair bit of vert in the legs. And vice versa, if, you, if you're doing a really flat race and you live somewhere very, very hilly and you're not used to running for long periods or haven't done much road running and you're doing a road race, then the recovery is going to be longer. So the bigger the gap between your training and the race in terms of the terrain and surface, the likelihood the recovery is going to need to be longer. Whereas the more similar your training is to the race, the likelihood the recovery is going to be shorter. 
any um, any kind of time frame, Simon, that you recommend on that? Can I just add to what you were saying there as well? It's sometimes not just even that muscle fatigue and things, but when I've finished much longer races or events, um, my legs have felt gen- relatively, well, I'd say much better than finishing a road marathon. But sometimes my feet are absolutely smashed and they could be swollen, they could be bruised, depending on the type of terrain you've gone on. And almost annoyingly, when people seeing you hobbling the next day, they, oh, your legs, and it's actually, I'd like to be able to show how, how not tired my legs are, but my feet are actually so bruised there. And, and yeah, it's just because you don't do that so much in the training that often it's been, or, or blisters or something that's, that's occurred that sometimes that recovery then can be a couple of weeks just based on actually skin tissue regenerating and, and, and fixing itself up because you have got the soles of your feet might fall off. I've had, you know, blister upon blister upon blister, which you've managed to run with and it's gone numb. And then, you know, you th- the next day it's very sore and then it goes away. But then maybe 10 days later, the skin starts to fall off and then you've got raw feet again. So there's a, I think depending yeah. on the distance and the type of thing that you've done, it, it, it might also affect something like that. Um, and, and also just physical, like, well, just being tired as well. There's, you know, you sometimes it is a little bit like like jet lag. It can sometimes, t- if you've gone for one night or two nights that you've missed sleeping, um, that that can that will have an effect not just not just for a few days but it it can take a couple of weeks just to even get yourself back into that you know into that headspace again as well so uh, yeah, those I sort think, of things um, can be taken into account as well I think as far as recovery goes hormonal things that kind of stuff you know and I think when you touch on there with the mental recovery is a huge one that I'll often yeah sort of tell people particularly after their first sort of step it up they've stepped up in distance that might not even sort of set any training for the week after to sort of just see how they feel mentally mm-hmm. they often sort of say wait for the urge to run to return and for some people that is just one or two days later they want to go for a run great we can start doing some sort of active recovery other people you know it, it's fine if it take you know you've got you you've worked hard for all those months leading up to it you've worked really hard on the day it's okay if it takes weeks to before you sort of really feel yeah. like going for a run again. Like that's that's absolutely fine. Like it, let yourself have that time off in those situations. Absolutely. To recover. Yeah, I usually tell people that when you feel the urge to go for a run after a race, wait a few more days and then go for a run. Just give yourself that bit longer. Yeah, it can be the catch that one thing I've observed quite a few times, which is, okay, the week after people might be feeling it sort of, physically sometimes though races really light the fire under you sort of mentally like after that you're absolutely jazzed and so maybe two weeks later absolutely itching and they start trying to push training hard again already that you're giving them easy runs and they're really it's like that's not an easy run that was you're running every session as a threshold run basically and they go oh it feels fantastic though and that lasts maybe one or two weeks and then boom crash because they weren't physically yeah. recovered in that case yeah. they mentally yeah. recovered quite quickly but physically yeah you just needed to give yourself those few weeks yeah that's exactly what i was going to say what you find is that you know the first week or two is you know everyone's recovering but you can feel like you've recovered and mentally you're ready to go that's a good point but as soon as you start pushing a bit harder you may not feel it straight away but the amount of times that people will say you know i feel ready to go again and as you said ben they push a bit harder but then it might be three weeks down the track, it might be five or even six weeks down the track, you'll come crashing down, whether it be through an injury or just all of a sudden that motivation you had two weeks post-race has completely evaporated, your mojo's gone and you're just going, 
I just can't be asked running anymore. Like mm. I'm just not feeling it. And I always say to people like, you know, they say, oh, can I get back into training this week? Nope. Nope. You can't. You can, tr- you can train this week, but it's all easy runs. I want you to keep it easy. Oh, but I feel so good. Nope. Easy runs. How um, do people who do streak running fit into this? Because I've got, I've got a few friends and clients who, no matter what, have to run the next day. And and sometimes it's not a short distance. Some of them, you know, it, it, I, 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 yeah, I couldn't physically do it. <laughs> yeah, look, I think streak running you know, is a, a different topic. And I, I oh, think it, generally, too, but just from running after an ultra, you just think, well, yeah. sometimes the last thing I want to do is like, I'll have a couple of days and they they're out there the next day I, a friend of mine we finished GSER next day he still did his run I was, uh, my mind was blown yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm not a big fan but I, I think generally it's the week after an ultra walking is a good thing to do like getting out and just trying to move is a good idea I don't necessarily recommend running but if you are the streak type of runner that just can't bear to take a day off then most of those people if they've been streaking for long enough will have a well developed shuffle um, because the only way you can run for seven days a week, 12 months of the year, is to be able to run slowly on the days you need to run slowly, or you'll break down. So most of those runners have really developed the you know the art of running eight-minute Ks, uh, and so they go out and they'll do their 20 minutes and cover two and a half Ks or whatever. It's particularly slow, and they're barely even... They're more like kind of run-walking than running. Um, so for those people, yeah, look, as long as you keep it super, 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 super easy, then it, it's probably not such a big big deal but yeah personally for me and for my clients I, I usually suggest having a week off no running um after 100k uh, may, maybe maybe a run six days later like 30 minutes or so unless you're just experienced you've got to you know you know you can recover quicker but for most people just walking and stuff is a is a better thing to do for the first week so i think in terms of race planning which is what this podcast is more about i think you, you really need to think about having at least three weeks where pretty much the only thing you're doing is 30 to 60 minute runs. Um, at the end of three weeks, you can probably start to add some intensity or uh, increase the long run back to 90 minutes or two hours and build back into it again. Of course, you know, some people can recover quicker, but, you know, ballpark figure, I think from 100k, 100 mile, you're talking three or four weeks on recovery. Um what kind of things influence that, boys? We, we said training is one. We know that you know how well you train, your volume of training, how specific your training um, can all help recovery. Any other factors that help? I mean, with genetics recovery? is always a huge one. That some people it just seems are absolutely bomb-proof, and we're always very jealous of those who just seem to be able to defy yeah. all sort of uh, logic and that and just bounce back, never get injured or anything. Um, that can obviously so that can obviously be a big factor. Other people, you know, do everything right and still break down all the time, um, and there's not much they can sort of do about it. So there is then a learning experience of what do you need to do to recover and stay healthy. Yeah, I think you no. Know, as always with us, it, it always just depends. Um, so just because someone's running eighty k's a week and you're running eighty k's a week doesn't mean that you can recover as quick as them because there are lots of other factors. I think. Uh, one thing that is underestimated in terms of its importance is sleep. Um, post-race, the, the more sleep you can get, the better. Um, and some of us have restrictions on how much we can sleep, but every effort you can make to get an extra hour a night, um, that's an extra night's sleep over a week, and that can make a very big difference. Well, it sort of touches on recovery, and this applies in training, but it's obviously a big one from racing as well, where sort of the big three are always sleep, stress levels, and diet um that 
if you're yeah not sleep that getting enough sleep really important for recovery if uh stress levels are super high then that's also going to hinder recovery um and diet just straight up if you are in an energy deficit in particular you know obviously all of the nutrients are that and we'll probably do another podcast soon on nutrition and that specifically but if you are in a energy deficit you are not going to be recovering optimally at all no definitely not commitment to family commitment to work as far as actual recovery from a race is just a reality mm. for most people and it fits in with the, yeah. with the specifics of what you're saying but as a general term that's you know it's I have to, you know, some people you can you can train like an elite athlete, but you can't rest like an elite athlete sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to go to work the next morning. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we haven't mentioned which fits in well with what we just talked about. Then is that for some people planning races, they need to look at their calendar year in terms of work. Mm-hmm. For example, I've got one client who's a teacher, and he knows at certain times of year, it's just a highly stressful, very very busy periods of times where. He's tried racing in those times and just, you know, hasn't performed optimally just because he's been under a huge amount of work stress leading into that race. So now when we when we talk about race planning for him, the question is, what's your work like around that period of the race? Because if it's, it's an extremely busy period, like if you're an accountant, then probably don't schedule an A race in July in Australia because end of financial year, it's probably going to be, or June, <laughs> July, it's probably going to be your busiest time of the year. Um, so I think you've got to, think realistically when you're choosing a races like is that a good period of time like you know for people who want to do races like Tarawera or Bogon de Hotham you know those January February races that means December is kind of like your peak training month like how well can you commit to peak training in December for some people they can't there are too many Christmas things going on family holidays etc etc they're trying to train heat in Australia to as the well max. yeah a heat as well Very so hot, you yeah. just got to Think about, you know, the, the A races you're training for, what's the three months before that look like in terms of your your life and can you commit to training optimally during that time? Now, sometimes you have no choice. UTMB, like if you really want to do UTMB, it's late August. If you live in Hong Kong, that means you've got to train, or Singapore or any Asian country, it means you've got to train through the peak of heat and humidity um, to train for that and you haven't got a choice in that because you really want to do UTMB. But where you do have a choice and you're weighing up you know, different race options, think about what the three months before that looks like in terms of your work-life balance. Yeah. Um, just kind of almost wrapping this up a little bit, I want to talk about, theoretically, if we could schedule 12 months of races, and we'll talk about you know, building up to a 100k or 100-mile race on trails, you know, mountainous 100-mile, 100k trail race, what kind of races would we, as coaches... You know, suggest to our athletes in terms of C and B races. What would be ideal? So, you know, those those athletes out there thinking about what kind of well, we talked about B and C races, but what's what's the ideal? What should I be looking for in a, in a B and C race? And how how far, how long, when, etc. Ben, thoughts? So I always hate that word ideal because as we've sort of every time we're <laughs> saying it depends. Just caveat after caveat after caveat, and there is no ideal athlete in this idealized world so it simply does ideal does not exist so it's always always going to depend on what uh what as for all these things we said what fits in with the athlete for various logistical reasons what motivates them that are i don't think b and c races are necessary for many people um if they just want to focus on that one big race 
there are then they can certainly cover everything in in training if they need to and they don't have to do any other races if there's someone who is more motivated to race and need need something regularly then they might be doing every month you know a initial in the build-up they might be doing some regular you know half marathons on a monthly basis and then maybe um getting closer to the race they might say three months two months out sort of do a 50k um race before then build in the way building up to that sort of 100 mile 100k sort of race i wouldn't typically yeah or maybe they if we've got a full year then there might be one or two 50k 80ks earlier as well to sort of really practice things dial it in and have that sort of almost a minus sort of uh race to sort of get them used to um operating at that intensity for that sort of duration even if we sort of know that in the long term the target is that other one where and so the training might not be quite as specific as it otherwise would be Simon any, any further thoughts on that I don't know if it was going to be ideal you might split your year into four and do it in quarters and say oh you know we'll start off like this we'll have a few months and then you'll do a race get a bit of experience then you could you could do it like that and gradually increase the specificity of the race the type of terrain that you're going to do the type of di- the distance you're going to do practice nutrition but as we keep saying it's it it's what excites people and most people are doing this because they love it and if there's a bucket list race that's that's the month it's on and there's another one afterwards they might just do it and people people like the challenge people want to do it because it's the, it's it's a convenient time in their life it might be a good year that the this might be the year that they've got so again it's about saying that ideal thing like if if you were to have you know you could you could split it up and say this is what you could do and break it up like that but i think for most people it it's it's the love of doing it. It's the fun. It's it's getting out there. Oh, I fancy doing that race. And if there's another race that they fancy doing and it doesn't quite fit in with the time frame, uh, you know, they're just gonna go and do it anyhow, aren't they? It's gonna go and enjoy it. You know what I mean? It's and you've just got to and and you just have to work it in. The ideal goes out the window and slightly less than ideal works just as fine because it's you know get out there it's it's sometimes it's tourism you, you want to go there and it, it's an opportunity to go on a holiday because you, you want to follow the races around it's you know park run tourism is one thing but but i know people who will go and do races because it's a part of the world they want to go and visit a part of the country they want to go and visit there's friends that are doing it they might want to enter that because a mate that they haven't seen who lives in another part of the country it's an opportunity to go and meet them. There's, there's a, I think there's a huge amount of reasons why people might throw ideal out the window and just say, yeah, it's a chance to see a new place, tourism, meet some old friends, run with them. It, I, I, I can think of a myriad of reasons why people just love just getting into mountains and running regardless of the distance. You know, it's it, yeah, like I say, as sure. coaches, I know we do want to, like you say, look at, at ideals and say that's where it could build. And if you had that every time, that would be, that'd be you know, a, a wonderful situation. But sometimes that's that's part of being dynamic as a as an athlete and dynamic as a coach as well yeah, it's one of those things where i i as i said hate hate this concept of sort of ideal because i well and i don't know the you know we sort of say oh it depends and fence it was well, because i don't know the answer i've only ever coached human beings mm. i've only ever read studies on <laughs> human beings and they're all messy and different and so there is no <laughs> idolized robot out there yeah, there completely. is no ideal it does not exist that's what i sort of mean the chasing the ghost of optimal you're never going to catch yeah, it because it doesn't sure. exist but i think you also cover your arse though when somebody asks you can i run this race in a month's time you say well yes you can and as you just said there is no ideal but and now i'm going to quote the ideal i'm going to say but if this was the case and this was the case then you're probably going to 
either suffer from fatigue or possibly increased risk of things. So what we do is we we cover our backside because we do want to make sure that we don't in- overly encourage it and then end up with an injured client. So you want to say, well, I'm just giving you what could happen, but if you want to do it, I can't say mm. no. So it's yeah. a, you, 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 that's where I guess where ideal comes because you're trying to protect people. You're not always trying to break everybody. You want them to, to love, enjoy, and to be you know to be safe and fit and healthy, aren't you? As we said, it's, it's informed decisions. Of course, yeah, exactly, exactly. Give them give them your information, your experience as a coach, what you've seen athletes do and not do, and um, be able to handle, and then they make their own decisions. Yeah, I think one thing I know me personally does, and some of my athletes we work on as well is. Now, if we if we're finishing an A race, then often the finish of an A race is, is a chance to look ahead for the coming year, kind of evaluate where do we want to go for the coming year, what's going to be the next A race, and once you've established that, then you think, well, what are your strengths and weaknesses like based on the season just gone, mm. based on the recent races, where do you think you've done really well, where do we think your weaknesses are, where do we think we have to improve, and then I know me personally. I'd be thinking, okay, these are my weaknesses. If I want to do really well in this A race in nine months' time, I'm probably going to choose either a training strategy or a training plus certain races that targets my weaknesses, plus just gives me a dabble of my strength so I can boost my ego and boost my confidence <laughs> doing well in those kind of my, my strength races. So I'd be looking to get a balance of those races where it challenges me in my weaknesses, but also feeds my confidence in the strengths. Now... Yeah. As we had down in one of the questions, Ben, and you just alluded to it then, it's like, do you need to do A and B and C races? Can we just train through? And I think, as we always say, it depends. You know, me personally, I don't need to do any B and C races. I'm extremely motivated to train, train hard, train long, do whatever it takes. But I know plenty of people, it's not that they're weaker mentally, it's more that they enjoy the racing and they mm. want to break up periods of training with racing. I would definitely put myself in that category that I quite like jumping in. Yeah, as I said, I like to dabble in all sorts of different distances, that it's fun, it's motivating, and it's hard. It's good training, ultimately, that if you structure it in, these are big training stimuluses. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And for me, you know, one of my weaknesses is I don't like to race often. So when I come back into racing, I'll be looking at, okay, well, I probably would like to get a bit more racing in my belt because I haven't raced much lately. Um, Because you know what it's like when you haven't raced for a while, you kind of forget the little things that, that happen. And I'm lucky enough <laughs> yeah, as a coach, yeah, as sure. you two are as well. We kind of get to live races through others as well. So yes. it's not like I'm removed from it completely, but I know for me that's one of my weaknesses that I don't like to race very often. So I'll be looking at that. But I'm not going to force myself to do a race that doesn't excite me. Like I'm I'm all for doing a race that targets my weaknesses, but you know, I'm still not going to do it unless it kind of makes me a little bit excited. Like, for example, Simon, the local race, the, uh, the one up... Um, Mount Chinigan, the Chinning Chin Charge, yeah, um, yes. that's that doesn't play to my strengths at all. You know, a very very steep technical climb and descent doesn't play to my strengths, it's, but it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Doing. It's it's a classic race, isn't it? Because it's just it's just first to the top of a hill and first back down, and that's it. And it's a, it's it's like an old almost like a fell like an English fell yeah, like race. Point, yeah. You start in the village, you run along the flat to to some land, straight up to the hill. I know all three of us have done it, so. And, and then it gets very technical to the top. You turn around and you charge back down what is a, a very technical section at the top past people who are coming up. And it is a quad smasher. And it's only 9, 8K or something. Six and a half K. Oh, it's not a, Yeah, exactly. And I six remember and my, 
legs be ah, I stumbled across the line and nearly collapsed one year because it was just ah, it's it's a killer it's a brilliant it's a classic format but it's entirely yeah, different yeah I sort of love how you've got so to that's the kind of race do the flat the flat finish at the end when your quads are just smashed from doing this yeah, as fast as possible and you've got to do a few k flat just to finish off and you're trying to sprint and you don't you don't have quads <laughs> it, it actually reminded me a lot of uh, triathlon yeah. the transition from bike to run sense. you run down the mountain then you hit the flat road yeah. you go, oh hang on a yeah, second yeah, yeah. Like, what the here? hell's going on? Your legs are wobbling. It's a yeah, it's a different type of thing, and it's such a short race, but it is an absolute one of the toughest and yeah. the shortest races I've ever done. So that's that's a really good example of a race that would challenge my weaknesses, but I also really enjoyed. Um, yeah. So that's how I would approach racing. Uh, but you don't, as, as we've said, you don't need to race if you can structure your training around getting the specific demands suitable for your race and your strength or weaknesses. You, you don't need to race often. There's really no need for it. Okay, boys, I think we have covered most of what we want to chat about. One more on um, FKTs versus races. How does it differ in preparation and recovery from an FKT versus a race? So I see one big difference between FKT and personal challenges versus races being that you have so much more flexibility when you're doing, when it is just personal, you get to pick the day when the, or you might in advance pick to say, no, I'm definitely doing this day. But generally people come with the attitude. I can wait for the right conditions. I can make sure I'm perfectly fit. You know, if I've got a little niggle, it's fine. Push it back three weeks, make sure I get on top of it. It's all good. Whereas racing, part of the beauty of racing to me is that you need to turn up on the day and perform then no excuses that if you didn't get things 100% right, you that's on you. If the weather conditions aren't perfect, you need to deal with that. And I think that's a really beautiful part of racing and part of the challenge of it. And so that's personally why I sort of haven't done too many of sort of, yeah, those sort of other personal challenges sort of things that it hasn't been as even over COVID and that that was never such a focus for me. But for other people, you know, all those things I just mentioned are, you know, off-putting, if anything. They'd rather have that flexibility, which is great. And so for me, that's sort of the big difference. But if you are going to perform a similar distance at a similar intensity, then the considerations for training, and it's of similar importance, then all those considerations we've discussed are exactly the same. It's just that, you know, often because maybe sometimes people feel less accountable, so it might be that they don't, you know, it is of lower importance or, you know, there's the fact that if, you know, you're hurting halfway through, you can just bail out and stuff like that. That sort of helps a bit. But... See, I'm going to have yeah, to put so you that's up what on I mean. So uh, that's why I was, I was keen to now throw it to Simon who has just yeah, recently just done, done a massive, a massive one that there are, yeah, counterpoints to everything I've just said that... Uh, that accountability, I, I think the idea of having a set date in a race... There is still a set date because there is. So, you are the race director. You're the organizer. You've got a team of people, a crew of people, family, friends, everybody who's standing, and they've arranged their lives around your weekend. The race can come and go, but if you've arranged everybody for the FKT, so whether it's the Bob Graham round, which you did in the UK, or or the recent one around the Caldera, um, the Mount Warning Caldera up here, um, you've got that accountability of dropping out. If I drop out of a race, it's just me. But if I dropped out on that day, I had so many people that I wanted to feel that I'd 
done justice to the day and the amount of organization the amount of things because you are the rd you you are you I've, I've done races like things like that before you've set up you've got accommodation for everybody you've put it you've put there's actually quite a lot of commitment in the fkt for that if, if it's a supported thing if you've got a lot if, unless you're doing it as a solo thing obviously then I, I hear what you're saying but um yeah that accountability and just dropping out is when you've got that many people who just go ah oh, he didn't even make it to us. We're going to have to go home now. It's, it's a bit annoying, do you know what I mean? So I think there is, I, I, the race feels easier to turn up to because somebody, all literally all I've got to do is toe the line and run and then I finish. Um, but with, with, with an FKT and for people who do, you know, these epic FKTs, there is a huge, it's a project that takes six months or more if you're wrecking it so it's certainly things like Bob Graham where you go out and wrecky the course and if they're not marked because there's going to be no aid stations there's going to be no course markings you have to know that course and, and so there that accountability for paces and people who are with you and, and, and safety and things like that I would say is um, is, is equally as um, is pressurised as, as possibly race day I would say as, as an actual traditional race in that sense yeah, I think I think there's obviously I agree with both you guys. You know, different viewpoints, but it it's, um, reflects the different uh, differences we have in our ideas on racing and running. But I think you know FKTs tend to be once you've got it organised. You know, the, the, obviously the the time you need to dedicate to organising FKT is much greater than the time you need to organise a race. So you need to factor that in that, you know, you are now, as you said, Simon, you are the race director. So you've mm. got to factor in all of that. I think and the dates do become fixed pretty much, you know, yeah, you can have yeah. a backup date, but it, but you've got to then rely on those people going, going oh, I'll take time off work in two months time because I can't do it next weekend. Yeah. I mean, it, know, it, it, said, yeah. it depends on the nature of the personal challenge of F FKT. Your example is using there like Bob Graham round or a 250K around the Cordia that, that um, you need all of those things. If you're doing... If your personal challenge is how fast can I go up and down the local mountain or, you know, or, or something like a local, you know, <laughs> where it yeah, might, yeah, yeah. might be, yeah, Absolutely. something relatively local and something which is pretty much self-supported, then yeah. those aren't as much considerations. I think FKTs in general, and I'm kind of casting a you know, brush over the whole lot of them being the same, which of course they're not, but in general, you don't tend to push as hard. In general, because there's no one else around, there's no one else to really drive. In general, you don't push as hard. There are obviously massive exceptions to that rule. I mean, uh, Damien Hall's recent um, Pennine run, oh, um, massive exception. He's just smashed brilliant. the record by another three or four hours. So he was obviously pushing hard every step of the way. And and those athletes that are pushing for an FKT, a true FKT, you know, the fastest known time against mm. a well-established previous fastest knowing time they would be just as hard if not harder than it a race. would be hard to argue killian wasn't pushing hard up and down the matterhorn yeah yeah exactly exactly but if you're doing an <laughs> fkt that's really your your fastest knowing time oh, um yeah. then typically you will not push as hard because no one cares whether you finish it in 32 hours or 29 hours or 36 hours there's no buckles to finishing in a certain time there's no cutoff times the extra motivation required to push you to your utmost potential just isn't there. And for many people, you know, the FKT is a chance to cover a, a course that they there isn't a race on. They have a particular affinity to that course and just want to be able to do it in one non-stop run, whether it's four hours or 24 hours or 51 hours. So it's a, it's a different beast. And as such, the recovery from an FKT can vary immensely from not much 
to quite a lot. Um, as we say, I was going to say Bob Graham has a twenty-four hour limit. Are you not allowed does, to be yeah. in the club? Yeah, but <laughs> you can still you can still finish Bob <laughs> Graham. Just can't be in the club. It's not counted. Yeah, well, yeah. And that's the funny thing. There are people who finished it, and they don't count it as they've done it because it didn't happen in twenty. It's yeah. the forty-two peaks in twenty-four hours that you get the certificate oh, for. Yeah. It's and it's a funny one, isn't it? Yeah, I actually did do it. Or, or you could somebody could say I did it, but then I didn't do it. It's yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the arbit- the arbitrary number means something. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly right. I was looking at you know one of the things I wrote when we talk about choosing races. There are some crazy race formats as well. Like I know it's not some, but the, 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 there's some which are you know the, the hill in in, in Northumberland in the in northeast of England where you just run up and down the same hill. There was a race that I heard of last year, and I don't know if it would been a one that had been reinvented where you're not told the distance of the race until you get to the next aid station and you could be told that was it or there's 5k or there's 30k to go and it just keeps going and it's that it's a mind game of people who don't know whether to train for a 100 mile event or a 50 event 50k event and they don't know the distance on the day until they get i mean that's just a crazy sounding race there's the tunnel which is a 200 mile race that (laughs) goes through a tunnel um, and it's a one mile I think it's a, it's a one mile, one mile. Long, long tunnel, and you just run backwards and forwards in darkness. Uh, or I think yeah, I think there are some lights in, but they switch the switch the lights off. I had a yeah. friend Nez wore a head torch, and after after a hundred miles, he started seeing a spherical ball, and he was walking around it because he was hallucinating, and he realised it was just his head torch beam. It's people are looking for crazy, gnarliest, toughest races. It depends what, and we've talked about you know fast things and what people train for but when it's choosing a race some people are some race directors are twisted and some (laughs) some runners are twisted too they're sadistic they're looking for stuff that is mind-boggling like Barclay was mentioned before but there are people who are who are organizing similar just crazy, crazy well, ideas look how for backyard races. ultras just are becoming pretty mainstream now. Yeah, yeah, mm. everywhere, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> find a field and run around it <laughs> until it, it's it's the ultimate beep test, isn't it? You know, just keep going until nobody else goes. It's crazy, but yeah. So choosing your race, if that's what we're looking at, why race and what is choosing a race, it depends what your spectrum of madness is for some people and and race directors will play on that this is the toughest this is the gnarliest this is the steepest whatever you know kind of hyperbolic type of phrase you could use i think it's important too to that's where it comes down understanding what why you race and what you want to get out of a race i mean there's there's another race in the uk run by a mate of mine i think he's putting it on again this year i'm not sure but it's bingo the bingo ultra and I don't know the exact rules, but I think you put your hand in a sack, pull out a number, and you have to run that many miles. And there's a number of different loops. And That's all. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's mental. <laughs> but the, the thing with this race is that each athlete has to pull out five numbers. And once they finish that distance, the first person to finish those five numbers wins. But one person's five numbers could up to 35 miles. Another person's five numbers could up to 75 miles. But the person who finishes the 35 miles, they wins because they won their first. So just madness. It's just like it's, playing with your yeah. mind. It's just. And that's what I said. There's, there's a why. You know why do people choose races? They, we, we've talked standard types of races, but there is some really, really creative, clever, mad ways of people testing not just their physical but also mental sort of capacity. And people just 
we love it we get caught up sometimes in thinking that well, once you've done a 50k you should move to 100k and once you've done 100k you should move to 100 mile and once you've done 100 mile you might as well do a 200 mile i think for some people that's fine that's what floats their boat but i think i don't think we should be thinking that 100k is better than 50k and just because you're in a 100 mile race ah. you're a better ultra runner than a 50k runner God, no. i think you need to think about what as it always come back to why you race what you want to get out of racing <laughs> and what training you want to do for that race um and you know there was a post on, on some social media the other day i forget who said it um remove the word just before race distance like i'm only doing just the 50k version or i'm only doing just yeah. the 100k instead of the 100 mile so well, similarly i've heard people say there should be a name for the half marathon it shouldn't be called the half, half anything it's it's a 13 mile or 22k race it's not it half suggests it's half as yeah. hard you run you run faster and it hurts just as yeah, much exactly. <laughs> more. um so i think it's important to kind of you know if you're new to racing and you kind of keep hearing about these people doing longer and longer races is it doesn't mean you have to like no. you work out what you like the most and what you can train for the most i mean on the flip side of things some people love doing 100 miles but they can't train more than 50k a week which is is not ideal but they go you know what i know i'm gonna to have to walk large portions of it but i get to spend 48 hours out on the trails That's in the mountains I mean. and yeah I know I could do a lot better if I had more time to train, but I've got a busy job and a family, and I don't care that I'm finishing a race 15 hours slower than what I know I would be able to if I could train properly, but that's what I like doing. So there's just so many different reasons, and I think we just, as, as athletes, we need to really separate ourselves from the social media and what other people are saying around us is why they race and think about why do I race? Because at the end of the day, you're the person that gets to judge whether you had a successful race or not, whether it was 5K up and down a mountain or 200 miles around the Italian Alps. Like, it's all good and it's all just as valid. Um, there's no better <laughs> racing experience. It's, it's just what we want to make Yeah, of this it. is where sort of as like coaches, you sometimes feel like you're not playing like armchair philosopher in this case where it's sort of like, well, what gives your life joy and meaning? Like, what what is the purpose yeah. of it all? That it's the same with races as we said you don't need to necessarily keep stepping up in the distance you know it's the same if you know you think about work and that you don't necessarily you know climbing the corporate ladder might not be what brings your life the most meaning that you really need to think about big picture and yeah may maybe the takeaway from this is people need to go rethink their lives or at least contemplate the meaning of life and <laughs> where racing fits into all of that find your niche and love it <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. I think racing can be a microcosm of, of your whole life in general. Mm. I mean, I know as ultra runners, we, we often find that all the lessons we learn in, in racing can be applied very, very well to life. Um, and I think if we just spend a bit more time thinking about why we race and what kind of races we want to do, we can enhance that experience even even more. Any closing thoughts, boys? Anything we've missed out? Anything you want to add before we wrap this well, one up? Well, I think we've managed to segue all the way to go contemplate the meaning of life. So I think we've covered everything <laughs> at this point. <laughs> 42. <laughs> all right. Thanks very much for your time again, guys. I've really enjoyed chatting. I look forward to the next one. We've got some exciting topics lined up for you listeners, and we'll hopefully we'll churn these out every kind of month or so. Um, but if you have any suggestions, please feel free to email, social media messages, um, let us know, and we'll uh, try and incorporate these suggestions into future blogs. Any final words, boys? Otherwise, thank you very much. Enjoy yourself. Have enjoyed being out the trails, boys, and uh, I hopefully see you, you all again soon. Have a good one.